0: Hi and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is Dr. Kristen Neff, Associate Professor of Human Development and Culture at the University of Texas at Austin and author of the book Self-Compassion. Kristen has been credited with conducting the first academic studies into self-compassion. In our interview, we dive deep into the topic of self-compassion, fleshing out the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. Identifying the role of mindfulness and self-compassion, hashing out actionable ways to deliver self-compassion and understanding how one's life may change for the better with the acquisition of this invaluable skill. Here's my conversation with Dr. Kristen Neff. Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time out to do this today.
1: Absolutely. Happy to do it. Yeah.
0: I guess I would like to start out by just asking you what is self-compassion.
1: Right. Um, Well, I think the easiest way to think of what self-compassion is, is is it's really uh, treating yourself with the same kindness and understanding and warmth when you're going through a hard time, whether that difficulty is because you made a mistake or failed or because something challenging happened in your life, but, but treating yourself with the same kindness you'd show to a good friend. Um, and actually the vast majority of us are much more kind and compassionate to others than we are to ourselves. So it's really just including ourselves in the circle of compassion. So so that's kind of the easiest way to think about it, this kindness, but there's actually um, two other elements that are important to recognize. Uh, one is a mindfulness. Mindfulness is actually part of self-compassion because in order to be with ourselves when we have difficult emotions, we have to be willing to have the presence to turn toward our pain. And typically we want to hightail it out of there. When when pain happens, we either want to like fix it immediately or run away with the storyline of it or avoid it. So we need to have that mindful, balanced presence to you know, say, hey, this is really hard, I'm having a hard time, and then um, opening with kindness. But then it's also very important to recognize that, um, you know, suffering, imperfection, failure, this is part of the human experience. Uh, very, It's very important because otherwise self-compassion could devolve into self-pity. We know self-pity isn't so good. Self-pity is woe is me, poor me, it kind of exaggerates things, it's self-focused, The self-compassion is really just, yeah, everyone struggles, everyone's imperfect, me and other people. And so that connected aspect of self-compassion is what helps keep it balanced and not self-pity. Yeah.
0: Yes, um, a couple of things I'm interested to explore. You you spoke a bit about... It's easier for us to include compassion for others than self. Is this a a kind of a cultural belief that if we're too easy on ourselves, then we won't achieve something?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for it. And it does seem to be universal, at least all the cultures we've looked at. I mean, there are some differences in how self-compassionate people are. But most people across cultures so far that we've looked at are um, more compassionate to others than oneself. And I think there's a few reason uh, reasons. Most cultures, I would say especially American culture, but a lot of other cultures like Japanese culture, Chinese culture, um, the idea is that, yes, we're afraid it's going to undermine our motivation, You know that we need to be hard on ourselves to achieve our goals, that somehow we're going to slack off if we're compassionate to ourselves. Um, we're afraid it's going to be self-indulgent, Um, It's also a big fear um, that it's it's gonna make us weak. We feel like when we're kind to ourselves, that's a weakness and to be tough in general, we've gotta be tough on ourselves as well. That's a big one. Um, And also a lot of people just think it's selfish to have self-compassion. We're raised, and I must say this especially applies to women, you know, we're raised with this idea that we're supposed to be focused on caring for others, giving compassion to others. And if we show compassion to ourselves, that's self-focused, that's selfish. Um, luckily, there's research now on all these ideas to really show they're dead wrong. Right? <laughs> Self-compassion, you know, actually increases motivation. When we're when we're kind, supportive, and encouraging to ourselves, we're less afraid of failure. We're more likely to take learning risks. We don't get so anxious about failing, which can undermine our performance. And it actually, you know, when you care about yourself, you're going to want to reach your goals. So it's kind of like that that constructive, helpful coach you had maybe in high school athletics as opposed to the mean coach that just cut you down all the time. Right? We know that one way of motivating is actually more effective. So that's true of self-compassion. Um doesn't lead to self indulgence. We know that, you know, if you care about yourself, you're going to take care of yourself. So, uh, self compassionate people, just as an example, like they practice safe sex more often, they go to the doctor more often, they exercise more regularly, because again, when you care about yourself, you aren't going to be self indulgent, which basically means a short term pleasure at the expense of long term harm. Um, and also, it's it's definitely not selfish. We find that, uh, people who are in relationships, who are self-compassionate. Their partners say that they're more giving, less controlling. They give a lot more autonomy in the relationship. They're more loving, uh, warm. And that's because when you give yourself compassion, when you meet some of your own needs, you actually have more resources to give to your partner. Mm -hmm. Um, And same, same with caregivers and parents, right? Caregivers, who are more self-compassionate, they're much more able to sustain giving to others. They don't burn out so easily. They actually have more resources to give to others. So it's far from being selfish. Yeah. So that's what, that's what why I'm so excited about self-compassion. It's just, it works. It really helps, you know, and, and it's easy. That's the thing. You don't have, it's not rocket science. You know, we know how to be warm and compassionate. Most of us have spent our whole life knowing how to you know, use a warm, supportive tone of voice, how to say kind words to our friends and loved ones when they're hurting in some way. So all we really have to do is give ourselves permission to treat ourselves the same way.
0: I, all this is, is really clicking in for me. It really seems to make sense. What is a kind of an actionable way to engage in um, building my capacity for self-compassion?
1: Yeah, so um, there's, there's a few different ways. Um, some are just basic physiology, right? So as mammals, we all have a care system, whether you're a dog or a cat or a you know, monkey or a human being. Um, we, we're actually born with this attachment system because mammalian young are born so immature, they have a long developmental period where they adapt to the environment. So we know things like um, gentle touch, and warm, a soothing vocalizations, think of like a cat purring or, you know, a dog kind of mewing those sounds. We actually respond to those as mammals with that feeling of being, feeling safe and cared for, and it actually triggers the care system. So one very easy way to be self-compassionate is simply to do some gesture, like put your hand on your heart or hold your own hand. Some warm, uh, caring touch our bodies are amazingly sensitive to touch as a, as a signal of compassion. So that one's really easy. When you can be in that meeting with your boss and he's telling you something or she's telling you something and it's not good news, you can hold your own hand and with a sense of like just support and care can actually really help change your physiology um, when you do that. And we know that when you trigger the system, it's associated with oxytocin and release of opioids, the kind of feel-good, feel-safe hormones, right? So that's one way to do it. Um, then also just just the language, especially warm, supportive language in a warm tone of voice. Um, you can really, even though you aren't speaking out loud, you can use a tender, gentle, warm internal voice, or kind of a harsh, cold one, and we know that saying supportive words in a warm, gentle voice also makes us feel safe and cared for, uh, and really helps us get through difficult emotions okay. so those are just two simple techniques, and then there are meditations and other things you can do, but you know from the get go those, those are, again they are it's not rocket science <laughs> it 's really not it's just yeah. Are
0: some of the meditations uh, based around like mantra, positive affirmation mantra?
1: Uh, well, not so much positive affirmations. The slight problem with positive affirmations, you know, I'm getting stronger and stronger every day is, well, actually, sometimes we aren't getting stronger every day. I mean, it, can, it can conflict with reality. And we know that um, from all the work in the mindfulness world that if we try to resist pain and say it's not here or sugarcoat it or not look at it, uh, unfortunately, it actually makes things worse. So when you resist something painful, um, it persists. Like if you know if you can't fall asleep at night and you really resist not being able to fall asleep, you aren't going to like fall happily into slumber. You're probably going to develop insomnia or something like that. So we know that as a general psychological principle, that um, resistance to pain makes it worse. And the only real way to um, get through difficult experiences is by accepting that it is here. You don't have to like it. You don't have to encourage it. You know, you do whatever you can to help the situation. But when it's here, it's here. And and not acknowledging that it's here is really banging your head against a wall of reality. You know, when you're stuck in traffic, it's not going to get you there any faster by screaming and railing at all the other cars. You know, the best thing to do is just try to stay as calm as possible. And if you, you know, if you can find another route. that's great. Um, And so self-compassion is really the same thing. We want to be careful that we aren't using self-compassion as a way to make the pain go away. So let's say you put your hand on your heart or you say kind words because you don't want to feel bad and you're using it as a way to feel better. The practice actually doesn't work. So what you need to do is because you feel bad, fully accepting that Uh this moment is difficult, I, I feel shame, I feel... Fear, I feel, um, you know, sadness, whatever it is you're feeling. And if you just kind of have that warm, tender response, like you would to a friend. You know, you don't say to your friend, oh, no, no, it's really fine that your husband got cancer. You know, so of course you don't say that. That's not compassion. Compassion is, I'm so sorry, what can I do to help? Mm. Right? So you have to acknowledge and validate that pain is present. And then just offer that warmth and support. And it's exactly the same thing with ourselves. So to get back to your question, um, we use, we do use, uh, you can use phrases in meditation. Um, there are loving kindness phrases, which are phrases designed to evoke the sense of goodwill, like maybe safe, maybe peaceful, things like that. Or... Um, and actually, in our program, mindful self-compassion, we actually teach people how to find language that's personally meaningful. So there's you can use language in meditation. Um, uh, we do things like um, a breathing practice where you breathe in compassion for yourself and you breathe out compassion for another, and that's a way of again nurturing yourself and others at the same time, expanding the circle of compassion. Um, there are also uh, little practices like we teach actually this is all on my website most of it's on my website selfcompassion.org we teach a practice for instance called the self-compassion break where you just simply remind yourself of the three components of self-compassion mindfulness you know this is hard right now um, kindness you know maybe kind to myself and, and common humanity this is part of life it's not just me this is kind of part of being human and so little practices like that can actually have a very powerful effect
0: I wanted to ask you about something that uh I was listening to an interview that you gave recently and I heard you speak about the fact that humanistic psychology had kind of paved the way towards the work that you're doing in in self-compassion and since we're at Esalen which has been kind of a place of humanistic psychology i thought you might speak about that
1: very first MSc course that Chris Germer and I taught we co-developed it was in Fritz Perl's house Mm -hmm. And uh, 12 people showed up. And you know, the SLM policy is you can, like, if you don't like the course, you can change within the first day. <laughs> like, fully a quarter of the people left. So we've gotten a lot better since then. But yeah, yeah, so the whole humanistic psychology movement, the human potential movement, this idea. Well, first of all, you know, Carl Rogers talked about this idea of acceptance. The curious paradox is the more I accept myself, the more I can change, right? So this idea of um, befriending um, our conditions as opposed to trying to control or change them. Uh, really this, uh, um, I think the humanistic psychology movement also really helped move us from the idea of the separate self, that it's all about the self, the individual, and really start thinking about the, the context and the interconnection and inter- interdependence between beings that's also there. Um, so so that was really, I think, I mean, a lot of these ideas weren't new if you look at Abraham Maslow, all those people they were talking about similar things. I think they just didn't quite operationalize it in the same way. they used slightly different language um, and also they tended to be more focused on therapy right so um, you know helping people deal with their their past and so really so there was a humanistic psychology movement, and then came the mindfulness movement. And of course, humanistic psychology paved the way for mindfulness, of course, because it was that meeting of these Eastern and Western ideas. I mean, the whole early humanistic psychology movement was the meeting of the East and the West. And so when mindfulness came in, and especially when it got systematized through science, you know, having the science made a big difference, because instead of just being really nice ideas, they could actually do randomized controlled trials and say, does this really work and what are the effects and, and how does it change the brain, right? So mindfulness really paved the way for that. And then, um, you know, back in 2003, I, I wrote the first article on self-compassion from a scientific perspective. I mean, there have been people writing, especially in Buddhist circles, about the idea of self-compassion. I didn't come up with the idea, but, um, you know, I created a scale to measure it so that then we could start doing research on it. And, and my way was completely paved by all the work done in mindfulness, right? So people, they may have thought I was a little weird, but not that weird <laughs> because there's all this great mindfulness research out there. Um, yeah, so it's really this this meeting of the East and West started, you know, about 100 years ago now or something like that. Okay. It's been a while, it's, maybe not quite a hundred, it's been quite a while. Early part of the 20th century, anyway, and it's built and built. I also have to give credit, um, you know, I think to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. For instance, he held the first uh, meditation retreat for scientists. His vision was really to bring in the science. Um, You know, that again, it's a wonderful meeting of ideas, Western psychology, and Eastern kind of more contemplative traditions. But you take those two perspectives, and you add in the science, and then you've got this really stable three-legged table, you might say. And so, for instance, Chris Germer and I met at the first retreat for scientists, and I think a, a lot of the people in this field combine personal practice with their science. So whether whether you're a scientist like me, actually does research and statistics, or whether you're a counselor. Um, This idea of bringing in personal practice really makes all the difference. It's not, these aren't just ideas. These are things you can try out and see how does it affect me in my life. And then you can, you can go from there. So, yeah.
0: Well, another thing you spoke of was uh, that you were curious about continuing research, but also engaging in interventions.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, so that's really where most of my attention has been on. So like I say, um, with with Chris Germer, we've developed the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which is all over the world. Um, most of the continents except Antarctica, but the other six were there, right? And we've trained thousands of uh, mindful self-compassion teachers, tens of thousands have taken the program. And so um, you know, we've got we've got our manual and we have a manual workbook coming out next year on the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. So that's uh, really well developed now. We have a nonprofit to support it. Uh, and so I'm actually interested now in my research of developing briefer interventions to see, you know, because not everyone has the luxury of taking an eight-week, two-and-a-half hours, once-a-week program. They just don't have the time or the money or whatever it is. So I'm kind of looking at can you do smaller doses. So I'm doing some testing with healthcare professionals and also teachers I'm just trying to find out first of all is meditation necessary? It may not be. We know for instance that practice is necessary, but it doesn't matter if you do the self-compassion break or you sit down and do meditation. It looks like it doesn't, but it's too it's too early to say for sure. And also how what length of time do we need? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, in, you know, my, my goal is to bring this to the masses, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and it shouldn't just be the privilege of, you know, those who are able to go on meditation retreat or devote their life to um, contemplative practice. A lot of people, they're busy, you know, stuff to do. So, um, you know, how do we get these ideas in a slightly more digestible format? So that's what I'm working on now. Yeah. Oh, that's great. yeah. No data yet, but um, it's coming. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, I was just kind of curious about your personal path using mm-hmm. self-compassion. How has, it, how has it changed your life?
1: Oh, well, c- completely, you know, completely. So actually, um, I learned about self-compassion is, uh, when I started learning Buddhist meditation. I was uh, going through a very stressful time. I had, you know, gotten out of a relationship. It was very messy. I was feeling a lot of, you know, stress. I was actually finishing up my PhD at, at Berkeley Um and I thought, well, I learned meditation supposed to be good for stress. And really, much to my surprise, a woman talked about self-compassion, even more than mindfulness. You know, she talked about mean to be kind and caring and supportive toward herself. And so I, I hadn't really thought of that before. Like, what? I could be, is that other people's job? No, I guess I can also do it for myself. So I started practicing, and I just saw immediately the difference it made Especially, you know, I was, I was feeling some very difficult feelings of like shame and guilt and, you know, mm. it allowed me to hold it in a much more productive way than I was able to before. So I started practicing um, that and then, uh, you know, then I, I did go on to do some research on it. I had done a, a, post, a, a couple of years of postdoctoral study with one of the country's leading self-esteem researchers and I was finding out about all the, all the problems with self-esteem. I mean, self-esteem is good, better to have it than not have it. But unfortunately, people get it in really unhealthy ways, like bullying is a way young kids get their self-esteem. Prejudice is a way people feel good about themselves, feeling special and above average, you know, narcissism. It's a lot of, and it's also contingent. In other words, we have self-esteem when we succeed, but it deserts us when we fail. Yes. And then so I was practicing self compassion and saw, wow, well, this is much more stable and, you know, a much more reliable friend, you might say, than self esteem. But then when I when I really, really saw his benefit, um was when my son was diagnosed with autism. You know, it was probably the the biggest challenge I had faced so far in my life. And um, you know, actually the day um he was diagnosed, I was scheduled to go on a meditation retreat. So I so I did that and um I just uh, really was able to hold all my feelings, right? So there was the mindfulness, accepting all these feelings coming up, you know, feelings you think you aren't supposed to have, like disappointment, you know, how do you feel disappointment And the thing you love most, you know, in the world, your child, but you know, that came up and I allowed myself to accept the feelings of grief and disappointment. But more than accepting the feelings, it was the tenderness. I could say, this is so hard for you, darling. you know that kind of that warm supportive relationship I was able to have with myself through it is really what gave me the strength to bear it. you know. And then um, I found that the more I could be warm and supportive toward myself, obviously the more warm and supportive I could be toward my son. that it, it, it wasn't at all selfish that I was I actually gave me the resources I needed to be the most unconditionally loving a parent I could toward my son. He's doing great now, by the way. He's a 16-year-old, hairy adolescent. He doing beautifully. <laughs> Nothing to complain about anymore. But at the time, it was difficult. It was very difficult. And self-compassion got me through. And I think that's why I'm such a, I, sometimes I joke, I call, me, call myself a self-compassion evangelist. You know, I really want to spread the good word because it's easy, it's cheap, <laughs> You don't need a doctor's prescription to get it. And it really, really helps. I mean, so we joke sometimes we call self-compassion the secret sauce. It, like, makes everything better, you know? Um, yeah, so... Uh, and and that's primarily because I know from personal experience. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor, you know? This is just from what I see in my own life. But then also the research helps as well. I mean, you know, the, we got... We got There's like 1,400 studies now on self-compassion. Yeah, so we're getting a pretty big body of research evidence to to show that stuff works. And
0: you mentioned it's cross-cultural.
1: Cross-cultural. Yeah, this you know it's it's getting more and more cross-cultural. It's still pretty um, you know centered on the West and United States, but some in Europe, but so hopefully we'll start getting more from Asia. Like for instance, really basic stuff I would like to know, like, are there um, ethnic differences in self-compassion, cultural differences? Like, you know, for instance, do Hispanic Americans compared to African Americans, compared to Asian Americans, you know, Caucasian Americans, are there differences in the value placed on self-compassion, how prevalent it is, how it works? We don't, we don't know basic questions like that. So that will I'm, I'm still hoping someone else will take on that task, but if not, I'll get to it. <laughs> you know, We do know it's not just an East-West difference. So you know, I, actually, early on in my career, I happened to have a student from Thailand and a student from Taiwan. And the student from Tha- Thailand, she's like, oh yeah, people are pretty self-compassionate in my culture. And they actually practice a lot of Buddhism in Thailand. It's a very big part of the culture. And then the student from Taiwan said, we aren't self-compassionate at all. And that's what we found. We found people in Thailand had the highest levels of self-compassion. People in Taiwan Taiwan had the lowest levels and Americans were in between. Wow. But what was interesting is in all three cultures, the more self-compassion you had, the higher levels of well-being you had. So even like in a place like Taiwan where it wasn't culturally valued, it still helped the individual to have it. They were less depressed and more satisfied with their life. So I really feel... Self-compassion is a universal human quality, just like compassion. I mean, everyone needs compassion. Others need compassion. The self needs compassion. But there are certainly um, differences in the blocks to self-compassion, and there's a lot of blocks you know, beliefs that maybe it's not such a good thing to be kind to ourselves. We have a lot of those in the States for sure.
0: Yes. You, you mentioned shame earlier and I, and I, it totally resonates with me. It's like, I, I'm willing to be compassionate with myself, I guess, with this idea, but it feels like around certain ideas. No, there's no way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, we think, we think shame is, um, the appropriate response. It's interesting, you know, in psychology, they're making a, a big distinction between shame and guilt. So shame is uh, well guilt is I did something bad shame is I am bad, mm. right? And what we know is that guilt is actually a healthy emotion. If you if you hurt someone, you want to feel badly about it, and then you can repair the situation and not hopefully not do it again. Shame is not a healthy emotion. Usually we hide from shame. Um, it actually gets in the way of our be- ability to repair the situation because we're just you know lost in yeah. shame, and it kind of kind of yeah. pulls the rug out from underneath us. And what we know, actually, believe it or not, is that um, having more self-compassion or teaching people to be more self-compassionate, it actually increases guilt and decreases shame. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you're, if you're kind to yourself and understanding, you can, you can take more responsibility for what you've done. You can say, you know, wow, I really blew it. I'm so sorry. It gives you the strength and safety to do that. So it increases guilt and re- increases repair of, you know, harm's done. But it decreases shame because you kind of understand, well, hey, it's human. Everyone makes mistakes. Um, it, it's, you know, it's just part of, part of being a human being to, to fail or to get it wrong. Um, and this sense of really trying to be kind to yourself despite your mistakes. So it actually helps. It helps. One of the most useful things about self-compassion, in fact, is it helps unravel shame. Because the, the biggest thing about shame is it feels like it's just us, like we're uniquely bad. It's, you know, we, we are somehow fatally flawed. But in fact, that's not true at all. All human beings make mistakes. It's actually the definition of being human is to be imperfect. And so self-compassion really helps us see that clearly um, so that we don't get lost in shame. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, we're almost uh, at our time. I know you got to get back to your students. I want to ask you just a couple of quick questions. Mm-hmm. What's something absurd about yourself that you really like?
1: Something absurd about myself that I really like. Uh, Let's see. Well, I do have a a pretty silly sense of humor. Um, I don't know if this is absurd or not, but some people may not uh, realize I love to dance. Like you guys, you know, five rhythms dancing and ecstatic dance. I just love to dance. I do it every Sunday morning. So, and I love um, dancing how I feel, not how I look. You know, just dance it all out. You don't care how silly you look. You just kind of dance out your emotions. I love doing that. Um, I, again, I don't know if that's absurd, but I probably look pretty absurd <laughs> at the time. Yeah, yeah. So
0: How about what is your secret superpower? Like what's something that you're really good at that not many people know about?
1: Ah, I guess I can't say self-compassion because people know about that. What am I... See? That's a funny question. What's my secret superpower? Um... Does making good guacamole count. That could be okay. Yeah. What's it all about? Uh, good, it's it? it's the garlic. Yeah, uh, just getting the right amount of garlic and the fresh limes. What does it? So let's see. Anything else? Well, like I say, I, I can dance. Um, I I I I must admit, I I can be pretty funny. So sometimes funny in inappropriate <laughs> moments. I do have that habit. But I, I like I like a good wisecrack. So if you like that, that's a good thing. If you don't like that, it's not such a good thing. But yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So. What is your favorite place at Esalen to practice self-compassion?
1: Uh, well, I mean, it, the whole, this whole entire place is just so amazing. Um, you know, the baths, I, I'm staying in the point house. And, and I have to say, um, you know, one of the things kind of working on developing the ideas of self-compassion is it really is a balance of the yin and the yang the masculine and the feminine. A lot of people think compassion is just like the feminine, soothing, comforting, um, but it's also a lot of yang. It's like motivating and protecting and supporting. You know, the, the person who goes into the burning building to save the people is just as compassionate as the person who like nurses their wounds after they come out of the building, right? So compassion is both as a very strong, like fierce compassion, yang energy as well as the yin. And what I love about Eslin is it so yin and yang, you know, the mother and kind of the waves and the ocean and all the energy is so strong here, but it's also a a very powerful place, you know, there's a lot of yang here as well, so I just, I can't even say which my favorite place, it permeates everything here, it really does, Um, so it's, yeah, it's one of my, Well, it's where where mindful self-compassion was born, and we come here every year, so obviously we like it.
0: Kristen Neff, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. To listen to more episodes, find us on iTunes or at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.